If you or anyone else you know is in the market to buy or sell a home, make sure you visit ccrealty.org today. We are the only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its commissions to nonprofits dedicated to fighting climate change, and we operate in all 50 states. Enjoy the podcast. Elaine, really nice to meet you. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the podcast. Okay. um, I'm glad to be here, Ethan. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Love what you're doing at uh, Soil Food Web. And, you know, we always like to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. I'm Dr. Elaine Ingham. Uh, I have my um, master's degree in marine microbiology. My PhD is in soil microbiology. And uh, I have worked in academia for, um, well, for about 15 years. I was a professor at Oregon State University. Um, kind of bumped heads with the university about genetically engineered organisms because one of my students showed that you can't generalize about genetically engineered organisms. They're not all going to be perfectly wonderful things. Um, the particular microorganism he chose to uh, work with was um, one that the genetically engineered version would have killed terrestrial plants could impact your life if there were no terrestrial plants to uh, uh, consume. So started my own business called Soil Food Web Incorporated, have uh, worked around the world with lots of different um, growers everywhere. I think the only place I haven't ever tested the soil is uh, Greenland. Otherwise, you know, I've gotten samples from the Antarctic and gotten samples from the Arctic Circle. So we understand even what's going on in those kinds of places and how important the soil food web is. So going through that, developing what it is that organisms actually do for you. Um, In different places, what are the different organisms? And you always want indigenous local species. You don't want to go to California if you live in Indonesia. You have to take Indonesian organisms. They're already adapted. Mother Nature has been working on that adaptation of the microorganisms with the climate for the last, oh, you know, four billion years. So I think she's had the time to get it right or way better than we've gotten it right. So working on that with growers all over the world, right now we uh, three years ago, we started a company called Soil Food Web School, where we are teaching people uh, about the soil food web, come and learn so you know when your plant is, um, leaves are starting to look like this. What does that mean? Uh, now, how do you fix it? And so we go through all of that with, uh, with, with folks. So you can be you know, your own backyard gardener, or you can do small scale or slightly larger scale. We have clients that have over 100,000 hectares of land that they want us to work on. So that's large scale. We're going that direction too. That's incredible. I I had never considered there being invasive or non-local microorganisms because I know that in one teaspoon of soil you could have like billions or trillions of microorganisms that means that there is number that I don't quadrillions of of different microorganisms all on the earth and that's incredible that's wow that's that's really amazing nobody really knows how many species of bacteria or how many species of fungi or protozoa or nematodes I mean, we just haven't gone looking, but it's, you know, 10 to the 10th power 
more than what we imagined it was even 10 years ago. Okay. Another thing I always found really interesting that I don't know how to explain that you can correct me on is that you can, there's, there's more to discover by going down microscopic than going out into the cosmos. Do you, do you know what, you know what I'm talking about? There's, is there more like powers to more, what are those, what are those called? The, the, you know, to the second power, third power, there's more of the, there's more down than, than up, which is like, whoa, like, where are we? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And especially when you think that like the people at the University of um, um, uh, Aberdeen, mm-hmm. uh, the, um, one of the, their laboratories is a laboratory that can um, keep molten lava molten and alive. And so they started looking in that molten lava and they discovered bacteria and apparently I've heard, I've heard this, yeah. fungi mm-hmm. that grow in molten lava. So we have, we've only scratched the surface, <laughs> literally. We've only started to understand right. the top couple of inches of soil. Mm-hmm. We didn't really understand. Well, you know, it's like when I started my uh, PhD at Colorado State University, my major de- uh, professor, Dr. Donald Klein, um, we put together a research program for me, which was really basically, what, what do fungi do in soil? Uh, are they important? And I was focusing on, on fungi um, and should have, well, and because what of what, what we learned, we realized that we had to f- understand all the organisms in the soil. But I went to all of the soils people in Colorado, at Colorado State University and asked them um, whether this project was a good one for me to do for my PhD. And to a man, they said, no, no, don't do that. Um, bacteria and fungi and soil, they, they're just there. They don't do anything. They're, you know, they just come back on their own. You don't have to worry about them. They don't really do anything. And I was, what are you talking about? Of course they're important or Mother Nature wouldn't have put up with them for the last three and a half, four billion years. She would have found something else to do what so she's kept them on this planet for the, way longer than human beings. And they do very important things. So it took the next, you know, 25, 30 years of my life to figure out all of the different, well, and we've only begun to scratch the surface, sur- surface of that. Mm-hmm. Seven overarching principles of productivity wow. have to be present in your soil if you want to reach the genetic potential of your crops to produce food of the highest quality, where all the nutrients are present in all the proper um, and, um, balances, you have to have that biology in the soil. So how, in, how dependent are we on all these little critters running around? And yeah, and you know, I'm sure you've heard the line, you've got more bacteria and fungi in your body than you have cells of -hmm. yourself right so how important are these critters they have to be extremely important what are all their different jobs and what and how do you make them do yeah so just lots of things to learn yeah we're gonna get into it i mean they're quite literally the foundation of of all life um i'm gonna have to head over to greenland and get you get your scoop of dirt and bring it back at some point but um (laughs) do you remember what first piqued your interest in microorganisms like years and years ago um when i was six years old my father was a professor at uh, the university of minnesota head of the department of um, uh, pharmacology and physiology at u of m 
And um, my two sisters were kind of girly girls. They got all interested in dresses and shoes and all that stuff. I was the tomboy. I fell out of more trees in my life than, you know, it's a wonder I managed to survive childhood. Uh, but my mom wanted to take us three girls to go shopping for new dresses and at the end of school or beginning of school. And I was like, and so, so she said, Larry, take this girl child and take her with you uh, because she's, she's already whiny. She's just going to be depressing. So my dad took me into the university and sat me down at a microscope. Taught me how to use that microscope, six years old. And when he turns around to leave me in his laboratory, so clearly uh, OSHA uh, um, requirements for uh, can you leave six-year-old children alone in a laboratory or not? Well, he did. Um, and when he turned around to go, he said, count all the E. coli in those plates. So that's what he did. I spent the rest of the afternoon counting the um, e. coli, and you can differentiate the E. coli because of different stains. And so when my dad comes back hours later, he says, so what did you do? Well, here's all the numbers. Here's how many bacteria uh, E. coli are in there. And that was my first introduction to a microscope. And so my dad my, and mom, whenever they wanted to pacify Elaine, sat me down at a microscope and let me work away. I, and I loved it. It was my first introduction to um, these organisms in the soil and how important they were. That's incredible. So you were enthralled right away. Do you, do you know anyone else who found what they were really passionate about from at such a young age besides yourself? I'm not aware. I'm sure they're, you know, like you, you think of like Stravinsky or some of the Bach children and uh, they were, you know, world or European renowned um um, musicians when they were 10 or 12 years uh -huh. old. So I'm sure they had to start, you know, in the cradle. They were, you know, uh, <laughs> something like that. Right. Uh, but it is rare. It is really rare for, for people to find what they're interested in that early on. Yeah. I mean, I would say I definitely enjoyed um, hearing what people said you should do and then trying to just not do whatever that was always. <laughs> so maybe yeah. that led me to, to where I am today. Um, you should be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, people said I should be like a, a lawyer. I would make a good lawyer, but people are always, they're just in, ref, kind of reflecting off whatever they are kind of feeling on the inside. You really need to come to your own conclusions. I think that's how you have the most success, but at age six, that's really interesting. So um, let's just kind of give a brief, I just want to make a brief distinction when it comes to talking about soil. So is, is there, a, there's a difference because they say we're depleting our topsoil. So is there a difference between topsoil and just soil in general? Um, not soil in general. What you're really comparing, they, what they should really be comparing it to would be soil versus dirt. The four letter D world word right. in, in soil chemistry. Um, but most chemists aren't really aware of what it is that makes dirt dirt, what it is that makes soil soil and so very productive. And so when you go back to the work of Hans Jenny, um, one of the found, um, founding fathers of soil science, he pointed out that soil had to contain three things. The very least, they had to have these, these, these three things. 
And so, of course, first was the sandstone clays, and that's the texture of your soil. Do you have big um, bits the sand that you can see with your eyes and water just goes whoosh right on through, nothing to hold it back really? Um, or do you have um, silt, which is about the size of a red blood cell? Um, so slows the water down as it moves through. Or do you have mostly clay? And, in, and clay is the size of a bacterium. All of these have by silica bilayers that form the basic structure in those sand, silts, and clays. They came from the rocks and the pebbles and things. Um, where did that material uh, come from? Uh, the sand, silt, and clay wasn't here when this planet was born. Hmm. Um, so first of all, wind and weather, lightning strikes, hot, cold, freeze, you know, um, that started breaking the rocks down into sands and silts, maybe some clays. But it really wasn't until bacteria came along and started growing on the surfaces of all those rocks, of all the parent material, and started to break it down, that we really started to have that basic part of the soil. So that's where it comes from, is the action of the bacteria and the fungi chewing with their acids chewing with their enzymes to break uh, those big rocks uh, down into the sands, the silts, the clays. So that's the surface for the microorganisms to start to grow on and attach themselves. So soil has to contain organisms. It has to contain life. Bacteria and fungi are the absolute least Mm -hmm. um, components. But in order to have nutrient cycling, you have to have the protozoa, uh, nematodes, microarthropods, incotraeids, earthworms. Those are some of the organisms that have to be present in order to allow plants to start to grow. Right. So the third thing that we need in that soil is organic matter to feed the bacteria and fungi. So it's kind of like, which comes first, bacteria and fungi or organic matter? Well, when you look at the development of soil, uh, you start out with layers of algae or moss or lichens on the surface and the bacteria and fungi grow on the, uh, released, uh, the released uh, nutrients that are inside those um, um, particular kinds of organisms. And so there's the food to get the bacteria and fungi growing to uh, allow nutrient cycling to happen in that soil. So when we're talking about soil, it really is, you've got to have the sand silk clay. The mineral component is in there, the, in that silica bilayer that makes up the structure of the sand silk clay. You have to have all those nutrients. It will be stored there in a plant unavailable form. So just because you have sand silk and clay someplace, does not mean any of those nutrients are going to be made available to your plant. The only way to make those nutrients available is to have the bacteria and the fungi making enzymes that pull the nutrients out of those silica bilayers. Well, if you've got a plant growing in the system making organic matter, food for the microorganisms, the plant puts out a different kind of exudate, different mix of um, sugars and proteins and carbohydrates. Exudate to, is something that's it's releasing? 
Yep, is what the plant is releasing. And it's, it's purposeful because it's putting out precisely, well, it's like sending a message to the pizza delivery guy saying, I want a pizza with cheese and extra sauce on it, please. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the pizza delivery guys called bacteria, fungi, protozoan, nematodes, the, they start to respond. I'm going to take your order. I'm going to go collect with my enzymes those nutrients that are in the sand cell and clay and pull them into the body of the bacteria and the fungi. So now you have stored organic material, still not plant available. So those nutrients are now right close to the root system, but they're still not in a plant available form. You have to have the protozoa that eat bacteria. The fungi uh, need uh, fungal feeding nematodes and microarthropods and bacteria also need bacterial feeding nematodes. When those predators of bacteria and fungi eat those um, bacteria and fungi, the nutrient concentration of nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, sodium, potassium, iron, zinc, manganese, man, uh, whatever you want to, all of the nutrients that you need to build the cells successfully will um, be released by the predators because the concentration of those nutrients in the bacterium fungi is so much higher that if those predators kept all those juicy nutrients inside their own biomass, it would kill them. Mm-hmm. And so they poop it out. So that's why a lot of people call this the poop loop because it's kind of like, you know, what the bacterium and fungi don't want, they poop it out and give it to the protozoa, nematodes, microarthropods, and they poop out what they don't need. And the back and the plant says, thank you very much. Yeah. Isn't that life? Life is just one big poop loop. Yeah, it is. Who eats who? And one man's treasure is another man's poop. Uh, You know, so uh, isn't Mother Nature incredible that she worked all this out? It did this all happen underwater first? It definitely started in though in water, you know, because most of the land mass uh, on this planet was underwater. So I'm sure that algal blooms on the surface of the water, well, when we finally do get land, we get algal blooms on the surface of the rocks, but it doesn't penetrate very deep. So we have this li- thin little blanket of photosynthetic algae and such but in order to grow a plant with roots it takes having all this other set of microorganisms present so that the plant can get the nutrients that it wants because that plant's growing in a solid material no longer liquid where mixing and movement is very simple a lot of the function of the microarthropods, of the earthworms, of the incotraeids in the soil, their function is to act as taxicabs and move these inocula of these really beneficial organisms all through the soil. Make sure that this area meets the needs of the plant. And then the plant starts taking up the nutrients. The plant's going to be putting out different kinds of nutrients, starts changing the community of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes. And then pretty soon another kind of plant will be able to grow there. So now the bacteria and fungi, they change. 
they allow the growth of that next stage of succession. And then that plant is putting out different kinds of exudates, causing the change in the bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and nematodes. The soil food web, if I can uh, mm-hmm. say that instead of the long list. Um, so you, that's how succession works. You slowly but surely go from not productive plant materials as far as a human being is concerned to eventually something that is going to start feeding human beings like um, broccoli and cauliflower and coal and kale crops and mustards. Yeah, but they're not uh, very, er, they are very early in succession. They're not highly productive. So you see the shift to things like onion and garlic and herbs and um, some of those, uh, you know, veggies that uh, grow. They're going to change things to grow an ever more productive grass species or row crop kinds of plants. Your fungal to bacterial ratio is starting at purely bacterial dominated early in succession like that. And what changes is in the next step, you start to see fungi growing. Well, in the next step, there's even more fungi growing. And so now you've got, you know, about a half unit of fungal um, biomass to every one unit of bacterial biomass. You're growing um, onions and garlic and herbs and spices and things like that. You go up to the highly productive grasses, the things that all of the um, folks who run the animals, they want to see these highly productive perennial plants growing in their system because Well, the reason is that the microorganisms in the soil, you have to have equal biomass of fungi and bacteria. And that's what is allowing those more productive grasses to be able to meet their genetic potential of production. You have all the nutrients that that needs. Now, that gets changed. The next stage of succession you're going to be pushing, or Mother Nature pushes more fungal. So now you grow shrubs and vines and, you know, uh, strawberries, blueberries, uh, grapevines, uh, cotton, those sorts of things. Well, by those plants being in there now, they're changing what's going into the soil. So you shift the bacteria and fungi so that it's even more fungal and you grow deciduous forests. Eventually, when you're at you know, like a um, hundred times more fungi than bacteria, you set the stage to grow old growth conifer forests. Mother nature controls succession. All of these different plants that we need, um, she controls that by altering the fungal to bacterial biomass ratio and therefore the predators in the system. Pretty cool, huh? When you started your PhD, what did we know about this soil food web ecosystem? Nothing. That's what I thought. And so we we were just like raking the dirt, planting corn seeds and just putting water on it and being like, that worked last year. Yep. For hundreds of years. Yep. The the first step that really started leading us down. Oh, you said zero, by the way, for anyone who's listening. She said we didn't know anything. Yeah, zero. I made the symbol of zero in my hands. So, uh, sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The thing that really set off all of the damage to our soils 
is the plow that was hooked up to a motor that could now drive faster and pull times through the soil that were much deeper than the human beings going out with sticks or even metal uh, um, knives or something like that. You start disturbing tons of hundreds of acres with that mechanical, with the motorized plow that as compared to what you can do with yourself and a pair of oxen with uh, ever so sharp one blade going back and forth, back and, back and forth. Um, human beings couldn't grow that, they couldn't care for um, enough land, convert enough land that by each individual, you know, max, they could probably manage something like 15 to 20 acres. That would be it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you've got a motorized um, tillage equipment, now we can go 100 acres, 200 acres in the course of one day. So there's the downward spiral starting to happen. So early in the 19th, well, late 1800s, uh, the uh, motorized tractor was brought over from, uh, from Australia. Thank you, Aussies for starting this whole downward trend. Who knew? (laughs) Um, And every time you till, you kill about 50% of the bacteria, of the fungi, of the protozoa, the nematodes, of the microarthropods, all the organisms that you need for normal nutrient cycling to be occurring in the soil, for normal retention of nutrients within the soil, of... making certain that the plant gets all the nutrients it needs so its immune system is functioning normally. When we grow plants in dirt, the plant can't get the nutrients that it wants. And therefore, most plant people, botanists say, uh, plants don't have immune systems because they've never seen them work. Because you, you were making certain that that plant couldn't express that function because the plant wasn't getting the nutrients that it needed to be getting. If it's get every second of every day, your plant is getting nutrients in the proper balances, it will have an immune system and it will not be susceptible to diseases or pests. And most farmers find that very hard to believe. They just No, I've never seen that happen, so uh, how could this be? Well, come see some of our demonstration farms, devastations, demonstration farms, um, because we've got them all over the world where people are being successful at getting the biology back into the soil, making sure that you're not slicing and dicing and crushing everything, and we're seeing these, this improvement in yield. Um, we usually try to tone it down and we say, well, we'll increase your yields by 10 to 20% mm-hmm. because farmers will not believe us. They will not invest in this shift to biological. If we tell them how much they might be able to um, increase in yield, if they do everything right, they should be able to get yield increases of 300% as much as 1,000%. Well, and then we're, what does that do to all of the carbon in the atmosphere? 
as more of that carbon goes into the fungal pathway in your soil, fungi sequester almost 80% of any carbon uh, um, material that it runs into. It's going to decompose that uh, organic material, and the fungus is going to keep 80% of that carbon in their bodies. If you look at bacteria, bacteria have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of five carbons for every one nitrogen, which means anything that a bacterium eats is not going to have enough nitrogen present in that food resource. It's got excess carbon out the gazoo. So the bacteria has to take that carbon and blow it off into the atmosphere as CO2. If you're in an anaerobic situation, it blows off as methane. So ratio bacterial dominated soil, they're going to be that's going to be blowing off almost all the carbon, not leaving any time because the bacterium has to have that much nitrogen for each five carbons. Yeah. So when you think about early successional ecosystems, they're bacterial dominated. So right. they're blowing off the incredible, well, if you've got tractors that are going in and tilling your soil and constantly wiping out all the rest of the food web except for the bacteria. Is that always how we've grown food, just by, by tilling? It was just on, in the past, it was on a smaller scale because there was less people. So that's just how yep. we've always done agriculture. Mm-hmm. We have right. always destroyed the soil to make it easy for us to stick the seed in there and get the plants that we want growing. Well, you know, it's okay if you only do a furrow, one furrow in a field. That's not really going to harm very much, and the organisms grow back quite Mm -hmm. quickly. It's when you destroy 100 acres, 1,000 acres, 10,000 acres. That's that's where we're turning it into a desert. Now, why is the Sahara expanding at some incredible number of miles every year? Because we've destroyed the biology in the soil. How do you fix this? You put the organisms back. Yeah, well, that's the scariest thing about it. And then I, I kind of I want to try to understand this as simply as I can. I know I don't think this is this is not going to be perfect science, obviously, because I'm not a scientist like you are. But there's this idea of like a keystone species, one that defines the entire ecosystem. And it seems to me it would be reasonable to call soil, which, as we said, comprises of billions or gajillions, a word that I don't have, of different species of microorganisms, amoebas. You're saying nematodes. I've only ever heard that from SpongeBob. Like there's all sorts of different stuff living down there. Would it be fair to say that soil is kind of the keystone species of the entire terrestrial biosphere? All of life is based on soil. Is, is that fair to say? Yep, Absolutely. Um, because it is what changes the direction. It's what the plants are informing. Here's what I need. Now go get it for me. And they go get it for your plant. But So why are we destroying the very basis of nutrition for human beings? Well, not just human beings. I mean, we are seeing large-scale loss of biodiversity on a scale we haven't seen since the fifth mass extinction event going on right now. And I'm sitting here thinking it's because we're pumping fossil fuels and building wood desks and plastic ear pods, but perhaps it's because we're destroying the main source of life by trying to feed ourselves. And again, it still comes back to the same thing is we're not doing things efficiently. If we have 7 billion people, we can't keep 
um, doing things as if it's like, I don't even know what example to use, like trying to carry rocks without a, a backpack. We can't just keep holding all the rocks in our arms and trying to walk. We need to build a backpack so we can actually carry more rocks, the amount of rocks that we need. That's the first thing I could think of. But um, yeah, and it's cool. It's I mean, thank you for doing the research and thank people like Gabe and all the other people in the regenerative agriculture movement for getting this information right when we need it because we're getting to the kind of like the tipping point here now, you know? Yeah, but if, if we could get everybody in the world to start composting correctly, to, to start using that compost to reestablish the organisms in the soil, it would only take us something like six to 10 years to take all the elevated CO2 in the atmosphere and put it back into the soil from whence it came. Put it back where Mother Nature originally had it. Not just put it back, but use it as a source of energy to create a bustle of life like we haven't seen since the, what is it, the Cambrian explosion or something? We we could make so much more. That's why I, I kind of, I people talk about using less energy. I, I'm in the environmental space a lot. People talk about using less energy, having less children. But when I look at the this this issue of, of just environmental stewardship, it would seem to me the solution would not be to do less things, but to create more, more life. But if humans are, if by creating humans, you kill more things, that's a net negative. But if, by, but if by creating more farmers or more stewards of the planet, by if one person coming into existence creates billions more microorganisms, that would seem to be a net positive to me. That's kind of the way I'm looking at this issue now that I've gotten much deeper than just, oh, let's suck the carbon out. Like, it's not just that. It's like there's a whole giant web of, of life. I mean, you're talking about just the soil food web. There's a web of life that could perpetually go on past Earth as far as I know. But this is the one that we're, we're certain about. <laughs> yeah, we can do something about this one. But, right. You know, we, when we've solved this we can very easily go on to exploring for that. Right. Well, well, how do you think about all these issues? Soil depletion. These are these existential crises, soil depletion, biodiversity loss, climate change. Do you think humanity is responsible for healing or for the health of all living things on earth? And then if that is the case, which I, I mean, it seems that we're responsible for the, for the reduction. I would make the argument, of course, I'm asking the question, but um, why do you think we all seem to just care about like really silly things like Ferraris and, and I don't know. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how we slid off the edge of the, uh, you know, the narrow path to perfection. Um, <laughs> but we sure did. Um, and, and we're just oblivious. We're selfish. We're arrogant. We don't take into account that there are other organisms on this planet that uh, are probably are equal in worth. Um we keep humans keep defining their worth as how much money can you make mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter exactly how you got that money as long as you've got the millions to you know shake in other people's face oh wow yeah and it's just yeah we're we are really mixed up as a species and that needs to change uh we have to stop being be we have to stop being arrogant and thinking that we know it all. Poor Mother Nature, she can't grow enough plants fast enough. So we've got to step in and we got to take care of her. You know, the proverbial pat the little lady on the head. Yeah, well, in a war between us and Mother Nature, yeah, we might win the first battle. And we've sort of won the first battle. 
but who's going to win this war? It's not going to be humans. Well, it's the same thing. It's like, why did we lose the war in Vietnam? We were fighting for a ca- um, some sort of, I don't even know why we were in Vietnam, but like the Vietnamese people were fighting for their lives. It's like, it's either that, it's either this or nothing. It's like nature it think, sees things. And I try to look at things And this. People might think this is crazy. I try to look at things in like geological time now because it's really one human life in the span of like all life is is less than one tenth of a second like so we we can't really conceptualize this kind of stuff what do you what do you think it will take for us to make progress on these challenges do we have to fundamentally change the way we view the world or can we use our natural tendencies whether it's greed or a desire to be wealthy or strived can we use that to our advantage to kind of tackle these issues as a as socially speaking if a large number of us decided that um, rich people with a lot of, of money are really suspect. You know, their brain is put together wrong. And we, we got to, you know, how, to, how do you fix them? How do you get them to change that attitude and give them the lessons that say, you got to work with nature. You've got to work with, with your fellow man. You have to be in a community and live to promote that community. Not just yourself, selfish, selfish, selfish. We've got to change that. Um, you know, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Um, mm-hmm. All of that. You know, how did we get so far away from the essential truth of a lot of our religions? Uh, right. We we worship the Almighty Dollar, uh, which is pitiful. Not everybody does. But as a society, yeah, as a society, we do. So. Hopefully, those of us, of us who do not worship the almighty dollar, um, hopefully we can change the world. But it's yeah. what we got to do. Well, it seems to be one of the best ways to organize human productivity. And I, I can't help but believe that there is a way that we can use it to really, really, I mean, we have built such amazing things with our economic system and with it comes, I mean, it seems the bigger we get, there's more good and there's also more bad. And that seems to be the reality of the situation. The extremes are, you know, nothing in between. Um, we need to rebuild back that middle. Um, right. So, and you're getting a little beyond my ability as, as a sociologist <laughs> okay. to Fair suggest enough. the correct... Ask me about soil organisms and how they live in the soil. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got that down. Yeah. But you have like, you have like 20 hours of, of content on that. So I like to try and ask questions that you haven't, you haven't heard, you haven't heard before. Um, <laughs> what, um, speaking of like money, what are some of like the financial opportunities presented by um, soil food web restoration? What are your thoughts on getting people to care and to invest their money into this, this type of work? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit tough right now because we don't think in terms of uh, a financial, uh, you know, intellectual property and keeping it a secret. So all, everybody has to come to us and buy that material from us. We just, we don't do a good job of being, you know, entrepreneurs. So, um we sell the classes and, you know, people can learn for themselves how to make perfectly good compost, how to apply it, liquid form, solid form. So come take the foundation classes. We teach people how to become consultants, how to do lab work. Um, but, you, you know, 
we're not following the proper paradigm to become rich. Um, mm -hmm. I really don't want to become rich, although I would like to be able to pay my all my bills. That would be right. very nice. So I'm not quite sure how we turn this corner. Um, not my area of expertise. And I'm a research scientist. That's what I love to do. There are a lot more things that we need to understand about the biology and the soil and how they interact and work together. And what happens when you're up at 8,000 feet? And what happens, uh, what, what kind of biology do we have to have when we're down at below sea level? Um, can you take the, um, you know, the arid parts of um, Nevada and Utah and Arizona and turn that desert back into a viable, luscious forest? We can do it. Now, now exactly how are we going to do it and how do we get the people involved so that we can start making these changes? It's uh, more than I know, know how, to, how to do. One more econ question. Do you, do you believe we can strengthen the soil food web while maintaining our current supply chain for producing food? We have to get off the pesticides and the inorganic fertilizers. There is absolutely no reason we put on inorganic fertilizers except that we've destroyed the soil and you're trying to grow stuff in dirt. You're not going to be successful. You're going to have to use all those toxic chemicals. I, I hate thinking about what's actually in all of the food we're eating right now that comes from um, uh, growing in a chemical um, method because it's all contaminated with toxic chemicals. How can you mm -hmm. grow food for people when you're putting on toxins to what you're going to eat? So we got to shift that right away. Well, how are we going to convince the companies who... Um, make all this great big equipment so you can drive back and forth uh, once a week The um, in the chemical system right now. They're um, driving out there and putting on inorganic fertilizers or pesticides. Toxic material going out at least once a week, sometimes twice. And we've got to stop that. And then we've got to say to the uh, people who make the inorganic fertilizers, who make the pesticides, we've got to say stop. One growing season is all we need to do the conversion. If you're doing it right, it only takes a matter of a couple months. Can you explain where, that a little bit more? Um, so what we've got to do is we've got to go out and we've got to measure what's in the soil. Do you have the right biomass of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, and the good guys, the things that grow aerobically? And... If we get those or you know, find out what's missing, we can put back, we can replace that biology. So now we've got all those organisms in the soil and you can see the plants perk up right away. If you're growing perennial plants, they're kind of, oh, I can grow perfectly fine without pesticides, inorganic fertilizers. We've, we were, we've been working with people in the rose uh, who take care of some of the waste materials coming out of the Rose Bowl and uh, they make compost with it. And then they come back and they apply um, the biology onto, you know, plants that are in that uh, group 
where you get, they get the biology. The other gets the inorganic fertilizers, gets the pesticides, gets all the toxic things. And there's absolutely no difference in growth between the toxic chemicals and the beneficial biology going back into the system. We're sequestering carbon. We don't use all those toxic chemicals. There's no runoff of toxicity. There's no erosion where all of those things are happening, where the chemical um, materials were put in or utilized. So, you know, it's during that first growing season, we may not have doubled or tripled uh, productivity, Mm -hmm. but we're at least at the same level as toxic chemicals. And what's been, what has been happening with those toxic chemicals over the last one and a half months, the cost of inorganic fertilizers have gone up by at least 800%. The the pesticides, you can't even find them. If you wanted to pay a thousand times more for those pesticides, it doesn't matter. They aren't being made. They aren't going to be made until things in the Ukraine calm down. Right, because they're made from fossil fuels. mm -hmm. So what are farmers all over the United States, what are they going to do to try to keep their plants alive? If they don't get those pesticides, then they have to start following the biological approach. And we need to teach that to them. We should be teaching them now before... There are, they really start to understand that there are no fertilizers, there are no pesticides left. It sounds like a good time to teach them that. Wouldn't it be yeah. Yeah, logical on their part to maybe come and learn that right now? So we could make the compost to make certain they get it into their properties, into their soils, so they don't need those toxic chemicals. So earlier you mentioned this this figure that I know it doesn't have to be exact of six if we could draw down all the carbon in the atmosphere in six to ten years and that would bolster up the health of the soil slash the soil food web. I, I wanted to ask you: Is there any limit to the amount of life that we can foster in soils? People, I don't know if if people are aware. The earth has these different layers. I know there's the core and the crust and the, you know, there are other ones there that I don't know, but the, the crust is what we live on. It's this little, little tiny, tiny layer. And if in that crust, there's a bunch of other layers and the soil is the little, little tiny, tiny layer on the top. Is there any limit to the size that that layer could be? If we were to um, bolster it up with all this juice from this carbon that's heating up our planet, could we can potentially grow like a giant layer of life even more life than we have now on the, on the planet you could have roots of plants going down deeper okay um one of the biggest problems in agriculture is when you till you compact the layer below the tines of your tillage equipment and so roots growing through that soil can't go through that compacted layer and so they end up going sideways and then that means that this corn plant is fighting with that corn plant and that corn plant for all the nutrients and for all the water. And so, of course, it can't be very productive. It's going to be very much uh, attacked by diseases and pests because those poor plants are fighting each other for a limited amount of water and nutrients. Well, if we can start getting those root systems growing through, which means we got to break up that compaction layer and we must inoculate microorganisms that build structure 
the bacteria that make the little tiny aggregates, the fungi that bind those microaggregates together into macroaggregates and leave space for oxygen and water and roots and the microorganisms to move in there. And so as long as those roots are going straight down, they're not fighting with their neighbors anymore. So there's no nutrient limitation. As long as we can get the, those roots going down. Now, with a corn plant, how far down should the roots of a corn plant grow? 15 feet. And what are they like in the U.S.? Uh, about three inches. What? Mm -hmm. That's the difference. So massive improvements in yields. You know, we always, we talk to growers about you'll get more than 10% increase in uh, production when really it should be, it is way beyond that, especially once you get all of that biology growing all the way down. Well, look at a Douglas fir tree. How far down do the root systems of a Douglas fir go? 250 feet. And they don't have to be fighting with their neighbors. You can have lush, beautiful forests of anything you want where you don't have to do any work to keep them happy. All you have to go do is go out and pick the fruit once it's uh, ready to be harvested. Oh, that's such a difficult chore. It's just always delayed gratification. It's just the it seems like the answer to everything. If you can just wait a little bit, you'll get way more than you would have gotten if you weren't insisting on getting it all done in the third quarter of the second year. Like if you have a long-term orient, and I'm saying long-term, we talked about geological time before, like long-term, like five years to have like unlimited food in the future seems like a, like a no brainer to me. Of course we have to survive today. So it's, it's good, good things to, um, to consider. And we can do, we can take people partly, Taper, so, taper. Yeah, yeah taper it off areas. a little bit, yep. So they put on their inorganic fertilizer by and reduce it by 50% in the first year. We start getting the biology out. Their the farmers feeling safe because they've got their inorganic fertilizer out there and they see that, that the biological approach is you know, holding up their end of the bargain. So in the second year, we reduce the fertilizer and the pesticides by another 50%. And so they're even more happy with the results in the second year. By the time the third year comes around, we don't even have to talk to them about, don't bother putting on that inorganic fertilizer. Don't bother buying those pesticides because you're not going to need to use them. We have things to deal with. Every pest, every disease, every problem, organism, there is a biological control. And it's a real biological control. It's not something where you're basically growing a microorganism, producing strong acid or strong base or something really toxic, and you spray that out. Well, that to me is no different than buying glyphosate in a bucket and, and trying to and putting it on, which brings me to herbicides. We have been working. Um, and reading some of the papers coming out of the University of Tokyo in uh, Japan. And what they are showing very clearly is that nitrate is the form of nitrogen that weeds require. So the more you can take that nitrate level down, convert that nitrate into ammonium, you're going to be growing your desired plants fungi are going to start to predominate 
if NH4 is the predominant form of nitrogen within that soil. So say goodbye to weeds, not something you have to worry about. Those seeds will not germinate and will not grow if you alter that balance of nitrate and ammonium to nitrate and ammonium. You know, the nitrate being on the low side, perfect. Unless you want to grow weeds, you know, so you want dandelions. Okay, get the nitrate out there. I kind of like dandelions, but whatever. They're cute. I, I have um, an interesting question. So we're, we're up here kind of wrecking the ultimate keystone species of source of all life. Um, what's going on with soil in, in the ocean? Is it, is it, how is it different? And, and is it, is it still in a healthy state? Cause I'm thinking about uh, maybe a year ago, maybe not, no, it wasn't even that long ago. Time flies quickly. I was talking to, um, teas from the weather makers and they're going and they're taking silt from the bottom of this lake and they're using it to restore areas. So I'm wondering if like the, the soil in the ocean is still very healthy, if we could use that in some ways to restore things on land um, sediments are what you're really talking about well, he was and, sediment yes yeah, yeah. yeah. and so but it is a good way to think of of you know it's soil on the bottom of the rivers lakes, streams uh you know um, edges of oceans and seas and things like that um because we've been uh, applying all these chemical fertilizers Uh-oh. all of that stuff is leaching off the land and so when you think about it, it's somewhere along the line of um, if you put out um, one unit of, of um, fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer, only 20 to 40 percent of that nitrogen fertilizer is going to get into your plant. The rest of it leaches out, Water it's cycle. washed out. Everywhere. into your rivers, lakes, streams, yep. and, you know, it ends up in the ocean. So we are elevating the nutrient concentration of all the bottoms of the rivers and streams. And so I can see why somebody, you know, thought up, well, why don't we just take that sediment really high in all of these nutrients and put it back on the land and let's see what happens. And yeah, it grows um, plants quite nicely for a limited period of time. Um, you just have to hold on to those nutrients. And so you've got to get the aerobic organisms back into that material if you really want to make that a good, healthy thing to do. Bring that sludge back up, put it on your land, but now inoculate with these really beneficial organisms so that you get back into normal nutrient cycling processes. You get back into um, suppressing weeds and not having diseases, etc. That's his goal. They, they're, they're trying to build a, a self-sustaining system. Yeah, Tease is really cool. Um, so what has the, um, the soil universe and microbe community taught you about how you think you should live your own life? Um, helping out everything else I possibly can because we're interactive and we need to stay interactive. So um, we've got to support each other. Uh, you know, we got to do what bacteria and fungi and protozoa and nematodes and microarthropods and, you know, bacteria have their own little uh, condominiums that they build for themselves. And the next bacterium comes and, and builds that and that, 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 that. And then the fungus is going to pull that all together into, uh, you know, I like to say this little village called roots. Uh, right there on that root system, they're glued. They're doing all this nutrient cycling for your plant. Uh, that's may well be where the nitrogen fixing bacteria hang out until they're growing uh, close enough to a plant that 
we'll call them. Hey, nitrogen fixing bacterium, come over here. Uh, I'm I'm a, a nitrogen fixing plant, so you know, attach yourself here, uh, grow through my uh, root hair, turn into a nodule, start fixing nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So I think I like making stories up like that. I think we need to do a, a whole children's book series, yeah. uh, adult cartoon series on these things. So it's easier for them to grasp how important these organisms are because it just goes on and on and on how important these organisms are. Where are you going to find them? You cannot take something from like California and translocate it to India because it's a whole different set of bacteria and fungi, protozoa, and nematodes in California than it is in India. It's a different climate. They're not used to the same concentrations of things. So it's got to be local indigenous species that we're growing. We've got to make sure that they're good guys. And so that's what I've been doing is making certain that it's not going to be any undesirable organisms. But the diversity we're talking about is in the millions, the billions mm-hmm. of organisms. It's not like where you go to the store and you buy a jug of material that is put to sleep individuals of five different species. <laughs> Don't make me laugh. You know, it's five species. Ooh, you're putting five species back into my soil when I need a billion? <laughs> so it's a, well, you know, people just don't you know, go in and research a topic before they start buying. They listen to the, you know, the, the salesman right. and start buying stuff. And then, it, you know, they apply this stuff on their land and they go, didn't do a thing. So all this biological stuff, it's just, it's, it's, excuse the French, it's bullshit. Yeah. Um, and so now it's going to be twice as hard, three times, a hundred times harder to convince them to put the whole food web back into place made of local indigenous species. Not the first time I've, I've heard that, that uh, solution. I just, if 40 years ago we knew you made the symbol zero, it just makes me think about what else do we not know that's fundamental to our existence right now? And why, and how can we not have people concerned about how much money they're going to make and instead concerned about how we, how can we continue to propagate a successful human enterprise and be the good stewards of the world that we want to be? Now, you talk, we talked about selfishness, and I want to make the argument that one who's, who's being selfish is, is not, if you can call it selfish, is not serving themselves appropriately if they're not trying to create something more than themselves. Because you can't, no matter if you're agnostic or Buddhist or, or Christian or whatever, there is the, the most meaningful experiences happen when you go beyond yourself and you connect with something that's not just you because there's no way to deny it. You can't live in a vacuum because you wouldn't be able to breathe because there would be no air. <laughs> so sort of a problem <laughs> yeah so um i think we're gonna figure it out i think it's i think we'll 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 be in a more beautiful world here soon um just thank you thank you for all the recent go ahead i just wish that um would we could get started now i i think we are i think we are i just i think that not everyone gets on board with a new thing until it's popular and the stock price has gone up <laughs> it's still money. 
<laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's still, it's still money. I don't, I don't, I don't see any way, and I don't really see any way out of it personally. So I've given in. Well, I've taken the um, the contrary approach. I'm all into markets, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give all my money away, so I don't have any of it. But I'm still gonna use it because it's there. That's the way I've kind of the contrary and the the dichotomy or whatever you want to call it. The uh, the the thing that doesn't make sense that's that's what i'm doing so it make but it makes sense to me because i'm happy um elaine again thank you for all the research you've done thank you for sharing with, with my audience and myself today i've really enjoyed it do you have any advice for other young folks who are passionate about building a better world um you 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 have to be go- looking for the path less followed um because certainly where most of humanity is going down or where you know they've been proceeding along for the last 150 years is the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Got to go back and find the right path. Um, just as you were talking, it's you know, I'm just using a different um, you know vehicle. Uh, yeah, to express the my opinion. It's yeah, you've got to make money, but then what do you do with that money? Um, I've invested in uh, understanding the biology in the soil, and we keep discovering new things. I mean, how could you not? A galaxy of life. Yeah. Six years ago, we only had five uh, overarching important principles. Today, we've got seven. Um, Another year and a half, it'll be eight. It'll be nine, where we keep discovering, oh, look at this. These organisms are involved in these other really important things. Yeah, well, it reminds me of like black holes, gas giants, dwarf dwarf stars or dwarf planets. Like you're discovering new things in the soil. You know what I mean? Yep. It's Star Trek, but on a much smaller individual scale. But the effect on the whole rest of the world is going to be pronounced. Well, depending on how you look at it, you can really see it as as bigger. If there's more stuff, it might not be larger in mass, but there might be more content to observe. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Elaine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. Yeah. Hope to interact with you again sometime in the not too distant future. Absolutely. You're very welcome. And all right, everybody. See you on the next one. Ciao. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.